Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone would serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. He who serves me, my Father will honor him. Four great promises and four life-transforming demands upon the depths of our soul. Promise number one. You will bear fruit. Demand number one. You must die. Promise number two. You will keep your life forever. Demand number two. You must hate your life in this world. Promise number three. Where I am, there will my servant be in glory. Demand number three. You must follow me to Calvary. And command or promise number four, my Father will honor you. Demand number four, you must serve me. Not money, because no man can serve two masters. And we closed last Sunday's service on that. Note, asking a very personal question for myself. To what must I die in order to be a fruitful father? It was Father's Day. To what must I die in order to be a fruitful husband? Bear fruit in my wife. Would she be a fruitful vine? To what must I die that I might be a fruit-bearing pastor? And get more than one letter that a person received closed with Christ in salvation last Sunday. What must we die to as a church in order that we might collectively bear the fruit of walls coming down and love coming out and souls coming in? And we said we're praying for revival. And we said that if this text is true, John 12, 24 to 26, which I just quoted, if this is true, then before there's going to be revival into that kind of life, there's going to be a death. There's going to be death. And so the question for tonight as we gather seeking awakening and renewal and reviving and power from the Lord is how shall we die? Summer is for seeing and sowing, showing Christ, if that's going to happen, we've got to die with Christ. Now, before I, I move into the text for this morning and apply that to love, let me pose a question. Some of you might hear those four demands and say, whoa, whatever happened to John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but on the basis of that believing, have eternal life. 
And now you've just told us you got to die to bear fruit. You got to hate your life in this world to go to heaven and have eternal life. You got to follow Jesus on the Calvary road to be with him in glory. And you got to serve Jesus and not money in order to be honored by the father. Is this John 12, 24 to 26, a contradiction to John 3, 16? And the answer is, it is not a contradiction. It is an explanation. It's not a a nullification of faith. It is a clarification of faith. We in American evangelicalism have so watered down faith to quick, easy, make it happen decisionism that we have all kinds of people ascribing and giving lip service to the fact that they believe something about Jesus and nothing profound has happened here that could be called a hating of the life in this world to which Jesus promised eternal life. That's frightening. That, that there can be a kind of preaching and a kind of evangelism and a kind of breezy religiosity across America which when they hear words like He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Get this big question mark on their face as though that's something different from John 3.16. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will not perish but have eternal life. When in fact, biblically understood, believing is such a powerful, deep, driving, transforming reality, it always hates its life in this world. Let me put it like this. Faith is an embracing of Jesus Christ so firmly, of being satisfied in all that God is for us in Jesus, so deeply that all competing treasures to this Christ die. And if they don't die or are not in the process of dying, and we're all in that kind of process, this thing we call faith or believing on John 3.16 just may not be real in our lives. That needs to be said after last Sunday's text because John 12.25 and John 3.16 are in the same book, in the same Writer and in the same mouth of the same Lord Jesus, and they are not contradictory, they are mutually explanatory. You can't earn anything from God. You can't earn anything from God. Salvation, eternal life, is by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anybody should boast. But the faith that saves is a powerful thing. It is a powerful thing. It is not a simple thing, a small thing, a little thing, a weak thing. It is a mighty thing. Faith working through love accomplishes everything in the Christian life. I consider it one of the passions and calling of my life to understand the nature of saving faith and to try to live it. That's one of the burning passions in my life as an almost 50-year-old 
front end baby boomer is to understand what does it mean to simply believe? What is belief? Because that's why we've got worldly, carnal, look like American mainstream Christianity in America. It's because we have so defined it down so that everybody can be quick to get assurance that it has no power to change anymore. And therefore, a whole stream of scripture has to be called discipleship. Second stage. Add it on later if you can, but it isn't essential to saving faith. You can't make it work in John 12, 25. It will not work. Now, that's important. And I put it in here because I thought maybe as I closed last week with those four demands and those glorious four promises sitting on those demands, somebody might scratch their head and say, I thought eternal life was promised to believing. And you tell me it's promised to hating my life. And I say, it is promised to both because faith that is genuine always hates its life in this world. And Jesus is not contradicting himself. He's not describing two ways of salvation. He's describing how radical this thing is we call Christianity. It is radical. It is either radical or it's nothing. Now, what is dying and what does hating your life in this world have to do with loving each other? This is what I thought I was going to preach on last week. And I, I guess I carried away in that text that I had to make two messages. So these two messages, once they are, are, are written down for you, will be called Dying as a Means to Loving Part 1 last week and Dying as a Means to Loving Part 2 this week. And I invite you to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 13. On March 12 of this year, we began this series called The Greatest of These is Love. And today it's over. And as I thought of, of saying it's over, what just streamed into my brain was it'll never be over. Because everything in the Bible, and if I don't preach from the Bible, you, you stop me. Everything in the Bible relates to love. Everything. Every sentence in the Bible relates to love. It's either given the foundations of love or it's given the motivations of love. Or it's giving the path of love or the forms of love or the incentives of love or the goal of love or the God of love. Everything in the Bible relates to love. And therefore, even though this series, as I've called it, the greatest of these is love ends today. And we'll keep preaching both the staff who preach while I'm on vacation and me when I get back. We'll keep preaching on that theme right on through the summer. Nevertheless, the series is over and this fall. What we're going to take up is going to sound a lot like it again because I'm going to begin to unpack in September this magnificent vision statement that the master planning team has now completed. And I'm really excited about it. And that will occupy us in a profound way, I believe, for our own future beginning second week of September. 
Now, in this text, the verses I want us to zero in on this morning are the definition of love given in verses four through six through seven. I guess it is four through seven. There are 15 descriptions of love here. And my goal is to ask how they relate to dying. I was just amazed. I was amazed as I read this list that virtually every one of these 15 descriptions of love involves a death. And I won't have time to do all 15, but we'll do a bunch of them. Let's read it. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Can hardly stop. Love never fails. (laughs) You can read the rest of it. But that's all I want to look at with you this morning. Now we're praying for revival. This meeting tonight and on the alternate Sundays is, Lord, come, rend the heavens and come down and waken your church around the world and may the flame burn brighter. And if it happens, it's going to look like this. It's going to look like this. Verses four through seven. And the reason you know it's going to look like this is because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And revival is the work of the Holy Spirit. And these Four verses are the Holy Spirit's definition of His work when He revives. So be careful that you don't interpret revival in terms of falling down or laughing. Those are absolutely irrelevant manifestations as far as the Spirit's concerned. If they happen, i got no problem with them happening. If you want to fall down here after the service and laugh for half an hour, big deal. I, I might join you. But you need to know that in heaven, God's looking for this. He's looking for love among us. He is looking for love among us. I know a lot of people that have been touched in some fancy ways in terms of manifestations go home and they're crabby to their wives. However, I know a lot of stories coming out of this awakening that have also experienced laughter and falling down that have transformed their lives at home. Be very careful that you do not despise the work of the Holy Spirit, whatever form it takes. But let us be a discerning people. This is what the Holy Spirit does to authenticate his reality. The devil cannot do verses four through seven. He can't do it. He can do laughter. He can do falling down. He can do tongues. He can do all kinds of things. He cannot do love. Do not despise Those things just because the devil can imitate them. But here, brothers and sisters, is the heart cry of those who want revival in its clearest, unmistakable manifestation. And if we've been on the right track that revival will only come by dying, now I can say love will only come by dying. Love will only come by dying. Let's take some examples from the text. Let's start in verse 4 with patience. 
and verse five on a lump it together with love is not provoked. Take those two things. Love is patient, which in the old translation is love is long suffering. That's exactly what the Greek word says. Makra, long suffering. And then love is not provoked. Those are two sides of one coin. Do you see that? Patient and not provoked are are the same thing almost. One's negative, one's positive. Long-suffering, easily provoked. Long-suffering, short-suffering. That's, that's what those two are. Let's think about those for a minute. By nature, not a person in this room is that way. Everybody in this room loves trouble-free days. Nothing broken. Nothing malfunctioning. No sickness. No accident. Everybody likes trouble-free days and everybody is prone to get irritated when things don't go the way they should. We don't like traffic. I made an appointment to go pray with somebody the other day. I'm 20 minutes late. I thought leaving out of the city at 3.30 in the afternoon was early enough. Wimmo. There I sat with Jim Bloom on the highway for 30 minutes. And we don't like it. We don't say, oh, wow, this is great. Interruptions are so great. Now, you might be that sanctified that that, that happens. And, and that would be wonderful if you knew God had appointments for you. And God had something he wanted to do with me and Jim in the car during that time. And no doubt he did. And it, I have to go through a process to, to get to that point. But by nature, my old nature, I say, yuck, on this traffic here. We don't like lines at the store. We don't like overheated cars on vacation in the middle of the freeway, 30 miles from two different towns. We don't like babies getting us up in the middle of the night over and over and over again. We like it when our plans work. And if they don't work, we tend to complain. We grumble, we murmur, we criticize, we get angry. Now, Paul says to us, love suffers long and love is not easily provoked. It suffers long. It doesn't have a short fuse. It's not quick to complain. It's not quick to complain. It's not quick to complain or murmur or criticize. It's slow to complain. And to love like this, I suggest to you, means death. I want to get there on time. Block, obstacle. Now what? Now what? Either provokedness and impatience or death to that plan. Death to that need to get there. Death to that need for a trouble-free day. Death to that craving that things go my way and go okay all the time. A death has to happen. You see a death there? I feel a death there. If the death doesn't happen, you're seething, you're pushing, you're pushing against it. You're tooting your horn, you're drumming your fingers, you're grabbing the steering wheel, you're complaining, you're verbally hot. You haven't died. Something's got to die. So that the, the, the birth of peace in the midst of a frustration and a disappointment 
can come. Here's example number two. In verse four, it says, uh, love does not brag and is not arrogant. Everybody likes to be made much of. Everybody likes it when people notice our successes and do not notice our failures. Everybody likes it when they hear somebody saying a nice thing about them and we get angry or hurt or discouraged or bitter when we hear people saying ugly things about us. We are spring-loaded to take delight in people's approval and affirmation of us. And we're spring-loaded to bristle if they come to us with a suggestion or a criticism of some kind. And we've developed strategies now to express this. And a lot depends on your personality. A lot depends on your subculture. There are crude strategies that are called boasting and bragging and kind of a braggadocio, in-your-face kind of talk. We, we in America have, have turned the, the uh, vice of bragging into an entertainment virtue on the radio and on television. We have so distorted ourselves and our understanding of what is beautiful and seemly and good and helpful that we actually make it a, a tit-for-tat outdoing one another to see who can be the most self-assertive, the most cocky, the most devil-may-care-what-you-think kind of talk. And we've made it a virtue. And good ratings prove it. Now, there is another form, lest you sit there and say, or I sit here, stand here, and say, oh, I don't do that. I can control my tongue that way. There are much more civilized, acceptable ways of boasting. It usually comes in the form of turning the conversation back again and again and again and again to what you do. What you're going through. One of the, one of the strange ironies about self-centeredness and pride is that in a day of victimization like we live in, one of the most common forms that it takes is the expression of woundedness. Constantly drawing people's attention to your sadness and how bad things have gone for you. It's constantly. And you, 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 at first you, you jump in there and you, you empathize, but after days and weeks and months you begin to say, I really think this is... This is another form of my problem. <laughs> I don't do it that way. I do it another way, but this person seems to do it that way. Constantly seeking strokes. Self-pity is the form of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting is the form of pride in the heart of the strong. It's tricky because self-pity and expressions of, oh, poor me, don't at first look like pride. The way, did you see the way I did it? Looks like pride. But it's subtle. And I just point that out, lest we hear the words brag or boast or arrogant, which are strong ways of expressing pride, 
and think that those of us who have personalities who may not do that very often must not have a problem with pride then. Everybody's got a problem with pride. It is the core root sin of the old nature. Everybody has a love affair with being made much of. And it seems to me, therefore, that if we're to love like this, love does not brag, love is not arrogant, love is not puffed up, love does not draw attention to itself in these ways, then the glory-loving, self-exalting, attention-seeking, whining, pouting, self-pitying, oh, poor me, or whatever the form it takes, has got to die. That's my only hope. It's got to die. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone in its self-exalting, self-protecting, self-nurturing, self-putting-forth way. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's other-directed. It's outward-bound. It's not talking about itself. It's, it's out there. It's moving on to other people. When things go bad here, we handle that with Jesus and we're moving on to other people. We're asking about their issues. We're seeking to pray for them. Well, how easy it would be, I suppose, for somebody right here to, to say, well, I guess you can't share problems anymore at Bethlehem. What can you say? We must, but you know the difference. You know the difference between a humble, vulnerable sharing of a weakness, sin, that should elicit profound compassion, empathy, and prayer, and a person who is hooked on self and expresses it over and over again with an oh, poor me mentality. You know the difference. And so I beg of you to be a vulnerable people, a vulnerable people. I want to be a vulnerable pastor. There's no perfection here. There's nothing to guard here. There are imperfections all over the place here. Don't misunderstand this point. We need to die. One more uh, illustration. Verse 5. Let's take the phrase, and it's perhaps the most sweeping one in here. Love does not seek its own. That's a real tough word on love. Does it mean you shouldn't want to be happy? Don't seek your own happiness? I don't think so because of verse 3. Verse 3 says that if we don't have love, things profit us nothing. Paul is appealing to the desire for profit. Therefore, he can't mean in verse 5, love seeks not its own. He can't mean you shouldn't seek your own joyful profit. He's just appealed to it in verse 3 so that we would love. Which means... Don't let your own private, material, limited, 
tastes and preferences govern your life without respect to what others need from you. Be an other oriented person or to put it most clearly, find your own joy in in the holy joy and helpness of the other person. I don't think this sentence means don't want to be happy. I think it means want to be happy in the happiness of the beloved. It means be so deeply transformed in what makes you glad that you will die to preferences here and tastes here and patterns here so that for this larger group or this precious person, a wife, a child, a person in church, a group of people, those can die for that larger joy in their blessing and your blessing through their blessing. If you're that kind of person who gets blessed through other people's blessing. If we're going to love like that, something has to die. Does it mean don't stand up for your own convictions? Do not love seeks not its own means don't stand up for truth as you see it anymore. Is that what it means? How easy it would be to distort, wouldn't it? The problem with that is Paul died for his convictions. He died. His head chopped off by Nero for convictions, for seeking his own convictions. Now, how, well, how do you, how should we say this? Here's, here's, as I was thinking and praying about this, here's the, what I thought. To the degree that your conviction is just yours, not shared by the wider church and not compellingly evident from Scripture, you better be slow to push that. You better be slow to seek that and you better be slow to get angry when another person doesn't seek it with you. But to the degree that there, it's not just yours, but it's shared by holy people and it is compellingly evident in Scripture. And I realize we got ambiguities all over the place there and differences of interpretation. But you've got to say it somehow. We all know that this is the way it works. To the degree that it is, is corporately and compellingly evident from Scripture, to that degree you stick by it and it isn't just yours. So when he says love seeks not its own, you stand by that. It isn't just my own. It's the church who believes in the deity of Christ. It's the church who believes in the substitutionary atonement and so on. There are these massive, great truths that are compellingly evident from Scripture. And where you draw your circle around those is going to vary. That's why there are different denominations. That's why there are different local churches. That's why there are different little subgroups in local churches. We're all kind of drawing our circles just a little differently because of what feels more or less compelling from Scripture that we can say, yes, I'll stand on this and I'll drive it and I'll try to recruit for it and I might even die for it and others drawing their circle a little differently. So don't conclude, oh, I guess love seeks not its own means we all better be relatives and I don't seek, seek to my own convictions. You don't seek your own convictions and we all, that would be a big, big, big mistake. Now, I want to close by applying this to probably the most significant 
issue of love among us, namely this worship style right now. Love seeks not its own. Love dies to its own. There are hundreds of people in this room right now, and some on vacation who would be in this room right now, who are joyful to the point of tears that for the summer we're doing this. We're worshiping like this. Drums, bass, electric guitar, bongo, guitar, piano. They are joyful to the point of tears that we're doing it this way. Because God meets them. They engage with God. They commune with God. They enjoy God. They're released. There's healing. There's power. There's awakening. People can actually get saved, believe it or not. A lot of these people have not sought their own for 15 years. And they have made no stink that we have done it another way almost uniformly for 15 years since I've been here. They have submitted to another way. They have yielded to what others saw as good and helpful. Now this summer, the shoe is on the other foot. And the test is whether those who prefer the other way will be patient and will yield, at least for a season, in love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is not easily provoked. How easily are you provoked by this music or by the absence of it? How easy. Love seeks not its own Maybe I can draw the series, the whole series, to a close like this. On March 12, I began the series with really deep feelings born of the articles that I had read by Francis Schaeffer, you remember, and John Woodbridge, Francis Schaeffer. And I I quoted to you Francis Schaeffer's word, when Christians differ, it is not the end of love, it is the occasion of love. For love. He called it a golden opportunity to show the world how to love. And he said, it doesn't take very much love when there are no differences to get along in unity. But where there are differences, then there is a golden opportunity to show love. It's going to take death. Death is summer. Death is fall. There are reasons for why we're doing this. It is not a decision of the master planning team. It's a decision of the staff and the elders to worship like this. Very self-consciously designed to worship like this. So don't track down your master planning team representative. Send all your cards and letters to me. And I'll distribute them to the elders. (laughs) Now, there are reasons. Let me tell you one of them. They are compelling reasons we believe. Here's perhaps the most important one. A task force will have been spun off 
from the master planning team within two weeks, probably called Task Force for Worship and Music or something like that. The job of this task force, which will involve some staff, some master planning team and probably some of you, will be to take the vision statement, which is a magnificent statement. I'm so eager to get it into your hands, but it'll wait. And to ask prayerfully discussions, how does the vision statement get fleshed out at Bethlehem in worship and music in the fall and the rest of the decade? And flowing out of that, before this year's over, will be, and what kind of person shall we then call to lead us in that? Now, that's happening. It'll start, I mean, we've been working on it as a big group, and it's going to get fleshed out in more detail in the little group, and then it'll come as recommendations to the elders and to you through the fall. And who knows, Lord willing, maybe we could call somebody by early next year to be our permanent worship leader. But here's what that task force needs, I believe. It's my conviction, and therefore I pushed this through. It didn't take much pushing. Everybody said, hooray, on the elders, I think. I've got to be careful when I say everybody on the elders. <laughs> but you ask them how many were enthusiastic about doing it this way. Here's the reason I'm so eager to do it this way this summer. That task force has seen 15 years of the other way and how it works. They need to see 12 weeks of how it works this way. They need to be able to say, what happened at Bethlehem when they did it this way? What happened spiritually? What happened corporately? What happened emotionally? What happened mentally? What happened with the kids? What happened? We can't just do that by saying, oh, we did that on Sunday night with 125 people. That will not answer the question. The question is, what will happen on Sunday morning when for 12 weeks we get into the swing of lingering in the presence of the Lord like we do for the first 30 minutes here, mixing it up. There weren't any drums last week, for example, and different instrumentation will come through the summer. What will that task force see? And that is a crucial question. And so I, I, I ask you to pray. You know, the issue here, and I close with this now, the issue here is not primarily worship and form. The issue here is primarily love. The issue is primarily love. Love dies. Patience is a dying to the desire for the untroubled life. Having no jealousy is a, a dying to the desire for unshared affection. Not boasting is a dying to calling attention to our successes. Not acting unbecomingly is a dying to express our freedom offensively. Not seeking our own way is dying to the dominance of our own preferences. Not being easily provoked is dying to the need for no frustrations. Not taking account of wrongs is dying to the need for revenge. Bearing all things and enduring all things is dying to the desire to run away from the pain of obedience. It's a death. There's a dying. And we have to ask, how do we die individually? How do we die as a church in order that there might be fruit? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I bid you come now. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as we close this service, 
And as we launch out into a week where we can see and show Christ, I beg of you, Father, to come and make us one. I beg of you to tear down the walls. I beg of you to make us slow to anger and quick to listen. Make us patient. Make us not easily provoked. Take away all bragging and all self-pity. Grant that we would not be bent on seeking our own. Father, I pray for revival in this way. For the falling of the Holy Spirit in the conviction of our sin. And for the vision of Jesus Christ. And for cleansing and transformation.